This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. I'm part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm here at Vox Media New York headquarters with Larry Fitzgibbon, CEO of Tastemade. Welcome, Larry. Thanks for having me, Peter. Thanks for coming down all the way down on a hot, sweaty day. All the way over from sunny California. You flew from Los Angeles for this podcast. At Santa Monica, yeah. I think a lot of people who listen to this uh, podcast will know what Tastemade is or have heard about it. But just in case they haven't, give us the the two-sentence description of Tastemade. Absolutely. So uh, Tastemade's a global food and travel network for digital platforms. In today's world, that means mostly mobile. So it's kind of like You make videos about food that are usually consumed on someone's phone. Food and travel, um, yes, usually on someone's phone about 80% of the time. So, again, most people who listen to this understand that food performs very well as a category on video. I think it seems super obvious now. When you launched, I'm not sure that was as obvious, right? I think that's true, and you also have to go back in time a bit. When we started, which was back in 2012, really the only game in town in kind of a meaningful way for video was YouTube. Right. Um, so we got kind of our start on YouTube. Um, certainly a popular category on YouTube, but not the most popular. Right. People, and I, I wrote about what you guys when you launched, and I think I was already like, there's a great mint pomegranate lamb shoulder recipe I got randomly off YouTube. And there were tons of ways to get food stuff on YouTube, but you guys said we're going to do it as a category. And again, it's, it made, the pitch made sense, right? The, I th- as I recall, the pitch was, I don't remember if you guys said it this frankly, was, look, there's the Food Network and other related channels like that on cable. Those are worth a lot of money. Um, there's nothing like that organized on, on the internet, certainly not on YouTube. We're going to be that on YouTube, and eventually we're sort of going to take over that category. That yeah. sort of, and I think I, you were going to people who actually owned food networks like Scripps and Hearst and those guys at one point saying, you should invest in this. I think and, eventually, and eventually fact, they did. Yeah, Scripps Network, uh, they invested in Tastemade. Uh, but yeah, I think that's a good way to think about it. Um, we thought about audiences shifting to new platforms. Yeah. Younger people want to consume content on the platforms that they're spending all their time on. Um, but what we felt was really important was really doing it around a brand taste made and then really doing premium content and shows to really build an audience and so that's that's how we approached it so now in part because of you in large part because of the success uh, buzzfeed has had with tasty everyone's like oh yeah obviously food's a giant deal on the internet and i want to talk about sort of how you got from there to here but when did it kick in for you guys you know, I think it was always popular, um, yeah. you know, as I mentioned, as as kind of YouTube was the first platform, we certainly, you know, were successful on that platform. But, you know, Facebook probably really started to focus, or at least we really started to focus on video on Facebook, probably end of 2014, the beginning of 2015. Um, and that was kind of an important moment for us. It was, as, it was mi- not migrating because you stayed on YouTube. Of and course, by the way, yeah, I mean, and we're I mean, still on YouTube I specifically today. remember people at YouTube, executives say, you should check out Tastemade. They're doing something really interesting. They were, from the get-go, very supportive of you guys and liked the idea that you were starting with them. Absolutely, and they still are. We just, uh, you know, they do the Brandcast event yeah. every, uh, every spring, and we were part of that this year. So we continue to work with those guys, but 2015, things really kind of started to, to pick up for us around building um, large audiences around our own original programming under the Tastemade brand. And then at the end of 2015, or kind of September of 2015, is when we launched on Snapchat. We became a Snapchat Discover Channel. Um, to, to help just explain that, there's peop, you know, about 150-plus million people on Snapchat every single day. Um, there's a section of Snapchat called Discover where yep. they have um, channels like Tastemade and BuzzFeed or you know, Vice or even more traditional networks like uh, Comedy yep. Central or ESPN. And there's a mixed track record for those guys, but it's working for you? It's absolutely working for Tastemade, yeah. We, we got launched on that platform, as I mentioned, kind of at the end of 2015, um, and, you know, we've done really well there ever since. We've grown our audience. But when you combine all of the audience across all of social, it's, it's pretty large. So about yeah, so how, how big 200 plus million people each month are watching Tastemade around the world, and they're consuming about 2 billion streams. And what portion of that is YouTube versus Facebook versus Snapchat? I would say the biggest partners in that is uh, Snapchat and Facebook. Um, of the two billion. Is Snapchat the same as Facebook? Or I would assume Facebook's bigger just because of the way that Facebook counts views and stuff is autoplaying? Or? Uh, they're, uh, it's not the same. I mean, uh-huh. I would say those two are the biggest. And, and they're comparable is, is, is how I would describe it. 
I think this is a softball question, but why does food work on video in a way that other categories don't, or why does it work better than other categories? Why, why does it seem to work so well right now? Uh, I think it's, well, part of it is Facebook and Instagram. I think those two platforms um, really lend themselves to this category. Part of it's the demo- demographics. Um, so our, our audience does skew a little bit more female than male. Um, I also think on those platforms, um, are also different different age groups, sir. So the, our audience on Facebook, for example, skews a little bit older than our audience on Instagram, and our audience on Instagram skews a little bit older than our audience on Snapchat. Um, and so I think that has a little bit to do with it. Um, but I also think just food as part of culture right now. Uh, it's you know people talk about chefs as kind of the new rock stars. Yeah, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna tease that we're gonna do a segment after this with Helen Rosner from Eater about that very topic about chefs and celebrity and, and the internet and how that. That works. When people are consuming stuff, your stuff, uh, I remember again watching, you guys showed me around the studio when you were launching or within a year of launching, and you were basically building, had built sort of what looked like a hipper version of whatever the Food Network's test kitchens were. And the idea was you were going to film that stuff. So and you were going to learn how to bake a cake or whatever it is. Is that still the same sort of watching people cook? Is that still the bulk of what you're doing? Or is it more, look, here's the finished product, isn't it cool? Or here's a wacky bagel. Uh, it's it's a combination of different different things. So some of it is recipe based, and that could be something as simple on you know platforms like Facebook today. When you see a recipe, oftentimes it's you'll see just hands quickly making recipe. It's right. kind of sped up to kind right. of right. You're not really going to learn, right? The idea is you might. Oh no, I absolutely think you learn because people actually quickly turn around after they've made the dish that they just watched, and they'll they'll post you, that. You could learn. Right, but the, I think for I, I would assume there's some eighty twenty rule where like most people who are viewing are saying that's cool. I'm going to make that one day. They're oh, never yeah, going to make right, it, I, and that a handful of people are using it as a utility. I was kind of focused on the word learn. Of course, you can learn from yeah. it because it's informative. But yeah, certainly some people are there absolutely to be entertained. They're not using Other, it the way that I went to YouTube and looked up a lamb recipe and then followed that. I think some are. It's a, right. it's a combination, but I, I think you're probably right. Uh, uh, particularly on that platform, a ton of people are are watching, um, are being entertained. Same same with Instagram. Um, all of these different platforms enable us to do different types of content, though. So we also do uh, host-driven content. So if you're on a platform like Snapchat, we might tease you with, hey, learn about this recipe, but then we'll have one of our hosts or tastemakers get up there and talk to you about how that was made and those types of things. And then we also have a lot of travel and food-related shows. So, you know, if you're interested in, um, you know, we have this one show called Day of Gluttony where we go to 24 places in 24 hours. And that we traveled to, you know, 16 different cities. And so we're telling you, not just showing you recipe content, but really kind of taking you on a journey um, with our host to go explore new food, new culture, and all these different cities. And then part of the success of, of this category, right, is that it's super ad-friendly. You can bake an advertiser into the content. You can create, the fancy word for that is branded content, right? So if Kraft or whomever wants to bring you something or you can bring something to Kraft, you can integrate them into the video. Maybe you say it's an ad, maybe you don't say it's an ad. It works really well. Were you conscious of that from the get-go, or did you sort of stumble into that? We were certainly conscious of how uh, advertising-rich these you know, lifestyle categories are in general. Right. Um, when, we, when we were thinking about building this company, we certainly were thinking about that. Um, as it relates to what you were just talking about, sponsored content, we do a variety of different types of sponsored content. So sometimes we will do something kind of as you described, right? We just, we just worked with avocados in Mexico, um, and some of the recipes we did featured avocado, avocados in them. Sort of, we you know, think about us yeah. like making a guacamole, and you can see how we could feature that product. Um, but we also are doing a ton of um, work with other brands that I would consider more you know, more taking a lifestyle approach, which could be like an Airbnb or financial services. So again, not all the content is recipe based. Some of our content, we're traveling around the world, exploring really interesting things or restaurants or cultures. And there's a lot of brands who want to be next to that kind of content as well. You and your co-founders came from Demand Media. That's right. Um, Still exists. I think they just uh, they got a new name now. Yeah, it has a new name, and it also split into two split different, into different companies. categories. But at the time that you left there, it was known and had a sort of rise and fall. But it, it, I think you left sort of on the way up, or maybe at the, right at the peak. Uh, it was known for sort of creating this new way of, of automating content based on what people thought a Google searcher would want. And again, I think part of the pitch when you guys were launching was you guys had figured out ways using technology to sort of create 
better, faster content. When I look at people who are making video today mostly, sometimes they'll have a story, like BuzzFeed will have a story about saying you know, that their data insights allow them to sort of create tasty. But generally, people are making video the way they've always made video. They're using smaller, cheaper cameras. They're more flexible. It still seems like it's the same thing, and then you sort of cut it up differently for different formats. Is there a, a tech part of this that's important, or is it mostly on the creative and production side? I think it's both. I mean, you know, what we're talking about is creating you know, the quality of content that could rival something on television. Um, and that is you know, leveraging some of the things that you mentioned, whether it is advances in cameras or just simply working more efficiently. Um, but of course, look, we're modern-day programmers. If we weren't looking at data... Um, I think that would be kind of foolish. And so um, every day when we're thinking about what we're going to create, either in soft ways, right, our programming team is simply looking at the performance of how our content performs. Same way a traditional yesterday. TV network would do, right? Yeah, hey, this show did well, or this part of the show did well. They've had some way of measuring that, at least crudely, for a long time. It's been pretty crude, right? right. It's been overnight ratings. Um, and when you think about the platforms that we work with, you know, whether it's Instagram or Facebook or Snapchat or YouTube, we get APIs access to all sorts of information about how consumers are engaging with the content. See roughly uh, uh, who's, what part of the world they're coming from, who's looking at it, how long they're looking at yeah, it. Yeah, what the demographics are. You can see the exact curve for when they're watching. That, they watched that, the first 10 seconds and they fell off. That's exactly right. Or, you know, what percentage hung with you the whole uh -huh. episode. And so all of that data we're using, again, I would say we do it in two ways. One is in soft ways. Um, our programming team, right, is looking at that data. They're analyzing, you know, even something as simple as on Snapchat, there's a concept of what's the swipe up rate, right? So on, on Snapchat, when you're in Discover, there's small tiles or videos that are playing. And then if you want to engage deeper in the content, you swipe up. Yeah. And so just even the swipe up rate, whether or not um, studying things like whether or not we have talent on the what's called the top snap or that, that top view, um, or whether we should lead with the recipe um, or what text we're and using. Snapchat is good about giving the data because for a long uh, for a long time they've only been around a little while, but initially they, they were very siloed and sort of they gave almost no data back. I think right? for Discover they've always they've been always very been about progressive about the type of information they're providing, um, and that's the information. Look, they we all have the same goal, right? We're trying to entertain people for as long as we can on these platforms, um, and so the data that they provide is you know, super helpful. So we can make real-time choices with the programming team about those things. And then we also have a, you know, a small team of data scientists who are looking at all that data and then trying to help us steer us in different directions based on either things that are trending or having some insight on what's happening on social or even uh, leveraging data like search to think about what um, people might be interested so the, the in watching. the tech is you've got a lot more data that's allowing you to make better guesses about what people will like. You still have to make the thing and hope they like it. And you can't really automate successful production, I don't think. I, I don't think you can either. It's absolutely what, you know, it's art and science. Um, and, uh, you know, I think in the early days when we weren't honestly creating that much content, it was almost pure art, right? But you don't, in, unless you're creating... Uh, a decent amount of content. You don't really need to go to that rigor. Um, but once you start to create content, Tastemade's now creating content in seven different languages. Um, we're programming on all these different platforms. All these different platforms uh, require kind of different content. And what I mean by that is the shapes, the sizes, right. um, the fonts, the lengths. All of that um, is can be studied. And we're studying it every day to make sure that, you know... This we're, image we're, works better on a Discover. This image works better on Instagram. This kind of image, like that's right, what or the image lengths, is. Exactly, or lengths of content. All of that we're analyzing every day to try to create the best content. But at the end of the day, if you're not telling great stories or your content doesn't look amazing, I don't think you're going to win. And so that's where, you know, again, particularly the early days because we weren't, um, you know, it, the, the market hadn't evolved as much as you kind of outlined, right? It was kind of YouTube in the beginning. Yeah. And then it sort of evolved over the last few years. Um, with that, as the world sort of evolved, allowed us to become more sophisticated about what we were doing. So out here in podcast land, uh, we have no data, almost no data. So we are hoping you're still listening. We hope you listen to these uh, messages from our fine sponsors who allow us to bring this product to you for free. So stay with us. We'll be right back with Larry Fitzgibbon. Today's show is brought to you by TransferWise. If you send money internationally, you know that is an expensive and time-consuming process, and the exchange rate you get from your bank can be shocking. So the next time you need to send money around the world, use TransferWise. They give you a great exchange rate, 
So your money goes further and you pay only one small upfront fee. It's easy and simple to set it up. You know exactly what you're going to pay upfront and you get the real exchange rate, no markup. TransferWise was founded by two friends. They were immigrants from Estonia. They were sick of being ripped off when they sent their money home. So they solved their problem by creating a company. There is nothing more American than that. So today, TransferWise lets millions of people and businesses all over the world send money all over the world. See how much you can save at TransferWise.com. You can download the Android or iOS app. Once again, that's TransferWise, W-I-S-E dot com. Transfer because you're transferring money around the world. And Wise because you're a wise person who listens to Recode Media. TransferWise.com. Hey, welcome back to Recode Media. I'm here with Larry Fitzgibbon. I don't need to do the, like, welcome back because you know what you're listening to. It says so right on your iPhone. You didn't pass out, most likely. Welcome back, Larry. Glad to be back. I want to talk a little bit more about what you're doing now, and then I want to go back in the past and talk a little bit about demand media. One of the pitches for a while for new players in video, digital players in video, is they're going to sort of migrate up to TV. Not only are they going to take the eyeballs that are moving from TV to the iPhone, but they're eventually going to start creating stuff that will actually appear on a TV. Maybe they'll make their own network. There's a handful of people who are trying that at scale, like Vice. Most people say they want to do it and aren't doing it. Where do you guys fall in that? Yeah, what I would say our primary focus, um, at least for the foreseeable future, is, is mobile. Um, that, that's where we see all the growth. That's where we see all of the engagement. Didn't you and I talk about you guys making television shows at one point? And we have. read a story so, about it? Okay, the, you do so, it. So what I would say is the primary focus is mobile. And I don't foresee that changing for some time. That being said, when we create content, kind of going back to a little bit to kind of the, the, our process, but when we create content, we shoot everything in 4K. And, and what that means is it's this really big image um, that looks great on a 4K television, which is kind of like the highest yeah. end television. And so when we're shooting, we're, we're capturing an image. Um, that becomes something then we edit in all these different ways for all these different distribution points. But at the core, we've got a great you know, television style image. And so um, some of the platforms, as I mentioned, about 80% of our, our viewerships on a mobile phone, um, but some of our viewership is on the television through our own products. So we're on um, like uh, Apple TV. You can right. download the Tastemade app and watch Tastemade. You could do it there. But the reason people want to go to TV, right, is that that's where all the money still is. It has yet to really migrate over online. So even though the eyeballs are migrating online, the money is chiefly still on TV. So there are people like Shane Smith advice and saying, well, if you guys are going to pay me to go there, I'll go there, whether or not it works. So do you guys want to build a new rival to the Food Network that's on linear TV or you don't want to be in that business? Yeah, look, uh, those types of opportunities cross our paths every so often. Um, we certainly have had those types of discussions. I think you at, at this moment we're getting pretty deep into – where it's becoming pretty clear that mobile is going to continue to grow and the dollars are going to come. I agree with you. They haven't come maybe at the rate that people would want. Um, so I would say that would be our focus. That also being said is there are some benefits to some of those deals. Namely, uh, you could potentially create a lot of longer form content that could feed not only potentially that type of distribution, but also things that you might do yourself. So like a, an example is most of Tastemade's audience is distributed on the big social platforms, but you can download the Tastemade app, and many people do because they either want to find content that they saw elsewhere. Those or are your hardest core fans. That's right. right. know they, what the brand is and know how to download the app and have a reason to do it. That's right. They want to save things that they found or they want to go back to things that they saved. So we make that available, and, and subscription is something that's also there. So we offer subscription on that product. And so if I what have do, longer— what do, I get, what do I get if I—what's what's a, what's a taste made? You get kind of an ad-free experience. You get uh, some access to some features. One of the most popular things to do is saving different content. What, is, what does that cost? Um, it's seven ninety nine. Seven ninety nine. And how many of those are yeah. you selling? Uh, we haven't given out our subscription Tens numbers. Tens of thousands? Uh, we haven't given out the number. I'm so I would consider it—what I would say is it's a test— um, for us, tens of thousands. Um, I would less. say it's. I would say it's. A t I wouldn't say you can keep saying All that, right. um, but I would say it's a test for us, um, and we're trying to understand that. And certainly, I believe that. I think that would be a more compelling offering if there was more long form content. So, to, to answer your previous question, um, I think if there was a situation where you could get that type of distribution, which would enable you to create longer form content with a really good business model, which 
to, to today, those models are pretty good. You know, cable operators pay you lots of money for um, you licensing your content. Um, that you know, I would be potentially open to that. What do you think about live and, and the kind of video you do? There's a, a push of varying degrees from Facebook and Twitter and some other people saying live is really important on, on traditional TV. Live is sort of the last bastion of where they can get big audiences, big ad dollars. It strikes me that the stuff you guys make is really built for on demand. Like it doesn't matter when I'm watching one of these videos. I can watch it whenever. Is there a live play for you or, or that's not really what you're interested in? We've been testing live on on platforms like Facebook um, and, you know, had a number of things that were have been pretty successful, like, you know, uh, you know, like 100,000 people watching concurrently. Um, which, what, what were they watching? And in that case, we were doing uh, latte art. Um, so we had a latte uh-huh. artist who would take requests from – um, from the audience to do different, uh, to, to basically do art on uh-huh. latte. So, uh, Tupac was a big, big winner that day. Yeah. <laughs> really? So you There's can a get Tupac latte? Tupac's face I would, I would on watch your that. latte. I would watch that. It was pretty compelling. It was pretty fun. We've also done other things like that where we did a, a kind of a spinoff of that, which was pancake art. And so we had this pancake artist who would do pancakes. Uh, so those are novelties. Part. I mean, do you a think little bit, that's yeah. repeatable or, or those... Uh, Definition of yeah, novelty, to some degree. Off. Yeah, it's, uh, to some degree it was because those were that was essentially the same format we did different ways. Yeah. Um, so we, I would say, we've been testing, experimenting with that. But by and large, I would agree with you. We're in the lifestyle programming business. There have been, you know, Emerald Live used to be on the Food Network, so that was a good example of a show that was live. That um, so I could imagine shows like that. Um, you know, as a, as a type of show that would be attractive in our categories, but we're also live. So. I want to talk about Demand Media, where you, where you came from. You and uh, two of your co-founders were at Demand? Yeah, I started this company with Joe Perez and Stephen Kidd, right. and, and we were three of the six co-founders of uh, that company. So there was a period, a year, two years, where Demand seemed like the future of media, and that terrified a lot of people and disgusted a lot of people and made a lot of other people excited. I remember writing a story saying, your, I think it was your private valuation was the same as whatever the New York Times public valuation was. It was when the Times was sort of in the really, really uh, on the ropes and had to take a high-interest loan, and they look like they may go out of business and they might be replaced by demand media. You guys IPO'd, and then it all sort of fell apart. What lesson, what's the most important lesson you learned from that experience? I think one was, uh, and you kind of see it in what we're doing today, um, was one, one of it was just a question of focus. Um, that company did a lot of different categories and, you know, kind of what – and I, I ran a lot of different categories. Should, do you want to – we should – I should back up even though I ask you a question. Should, do you want to explain what demand was beyond just market cap? Yeah, it was – it was started out as a fairly well-funded company, raised a, a bunch of money, went and acquired some companies. Um, one of the kind of the, – the biggest property ultimately became a, a website called eHow, which was a how-to site um, where if you were – you pretty much wanted to know how to do anything you could look for. Um, right. that so whether you went to eHow or somewhere else, you guys, the idea was you guys were basically mining Google searches and saying, look, people are asking to do this. Let's go create media as quickly and cheaply as we can that answers that question or purports to answer that question. Yeah, I think we were trying to – well, we certainly were trying to answer that question. Um, so, yeah, the idea was if you were doing media but you knew what your audience was interested in. Right, because they were telling it, you. It, because they were telling you it would be pretty smart if you actually created the content they were looking for. And so that, that was sort of – yeah, that was a, a fundamental kind of component to it. And I think a lot of the reasons that it upset people was you were doing it so quickly and cheaply. And a lot of the times you were just obviously just filling up – Every possible category you could. So that if you went, you could go to Demand or eHow and and find preposterous articles like how to put on bikini underwear because someone yeah. had typed that once into Google, and so you guys were creating that. Yeah, I, I would probably defend some of uh, sure. what you were, but I'm not going to bother because that's pretty <laughs> much the past for me. But yeah. what I will say is the one of the lessons was we were in every category, um, and certainly you see that in what we're doing at our new our new company is we're super focused really trying to be the best in our category. And then the other piece was, you know, video doesn't lie. You have to be great. And if you watch any of Tastemade's content, it's, you know, super high quality. It looks as good as anything you would find on television. And so those were some of the things that we were trying to do when we started this new company that certainly were based on kind of our life experiences. 
See, I thought you were going to say, but I'm glad I asked anyway because you gave me different answers. Well, one thing we learned is we can't be dependent on a platform because famously, in my world famously, Google at some point said, we don't like demand media. They didn't say it out loud in public, but they certainly behaved as, this way. And they said, we're going to change our search algorithms and, and to sort of punish demand and other people like that that are, we think, gaming the system. A lot of traffic went down. So it seems like you guys have learned that lesson by not working exclusively with YouTube. You're on Facebook. You're on Snapchat. Is that a reflection of your experience at demand, or you just would have done that anyway? Yeah, look, any time that you can you, – we've seen that same thing happen, by the way, in search, and people have seen that um, with different uh, – or not search, but also in social yeah, and, and, and people Facebook. Who, there's people who game Facebook, and they're now basically out of business. Yeah, or even if they're not just gaming, and they're just trying to build a business on, top, a business of on platforms, top of these platforms, right. um, which uh, certainly people are trying to do. Um, so, yeah, of course we, we thought about that. Um, and but, th- but remember, when we started, there really was only one game in town at the time, which was, was YouTube. Um, but we had a very long-term view, as we do today, which is there would be other platforms that would become important. Um, and we're you know, pleased to see that there are other platforms that are emerging as really strong video platforms that enable us to program content to, to the world. You started off on YouTube. You were sort of a YouTube-endorsed company from the jump. Now the, you said the bulk of your views, at least, are happening at, at Discover and at Snapchat and, and Facebook. How do you think YouTube sort of responds to the fact that it's no longer the only game in town? They had years when they were just no one came close to them, and then almost overnight they had real competition. Yeah, the uh, what I would say is, look, I, my sense is they're still doing well. Um, you know, I kind of think is, I mean, uh, YouTube's by far that's where the most dollars are going. That, that's right, and I think they're doing well and being like the resource we all go to when we're looking for a video, right? I mean, at least it certainly is for me. I, I think billion plus people around the world kind of view it in the same light. Um, they have some new initiatives that they're doing, whether it's around their subscription service or even around YouTube TV. So I think I'm encouraged by that as well. As, as you recall, if you go back in the history of uh, kind of online video, there was a moment where YouTube invested, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars funding channels. Tastemade was one of the was one of the companies that received some of that funding back when we started. And then they kind of stopped doing that. Um, and, uh, you know, I think I'm encouraged to see that you can see either with their subscription services or what they're potentially doing with YouTube TV is they're kind of embracing high quality content. But look, I think the winners, when you think about across all the big social platforms, when I think of the winners, I think of it as sort of a pyramid. Uh, certainly, if you're a p- true platform, you're going to have some level of user-generated content. Um, this kind of middle tier is kind of curating that. The best example on Snapchat is kind of live stories. They've curated the middle, right? They've taken stuff that users have created, but kind of packaged it in a way that would be more compelling or interesting to advertisers. And then at the top, again, using Snapchat as an example, they have, they have Discover and then they have Shows. And I think that's the winning strategy if you're a platform. I think you need to obviously be a free and open system. Um, that's what you know enabled them to become so um, massive and so successful. Um, but curating content and also creating content uh, that is of a higher quality, that does get a focus and attention of traffic, that's obviously really critical, and is of quality that advertisers will be interested in being next to it. I, I, I kind of think that's a winning Seems plan. Seems like YouTube as a company, as a, sort of socially, the, you talk to people who work there, even though they're doing, they actually are doing curation and they'll tell you that X number of, of views come from things they recommended, really resistant to the idea of having humans sort of curate stuff, that, that they fundamentally believe that if you put a bunch of stuff out there, let users find it and then use machines to sort of help speed that process along. That's the best way to do it. And to sort of the more they have their hands on it, the less successful they'll be, as opposed to a company like Snapchat who's very hands-on, right? From what I've heard, they give you guys very specific notes about what they want and what they don't want. Yeah, YouTube today is doing a little bit of both, right? Because, uh, yeah, broadly speaking, what you described is true, right? It's it's, it's simply a, a platform. Company. Yeah, it's simply a platform. Um, they're going to you know try to understand what uh, is delighting users, and they're going to try to let the platform sort of self-heal to achieve that. But with what they're doing around their subscription service, they are, you know, picking shows um, and creating original programming specifically for their platform. So I would say that's a little bit of them, you know, kind of living a bit in both worlds. Um, but, but not comfortably, right? Like you can just tell. Even when they do these big sales events, which they've gotten, they're better at it than anybody else. 
They're bigger. They've been doing it for years. It's still just not their DNA. Like they're not a traditional media company. They're an engineering company that has media. I, I, they're most definitely a platform. I, I mean, I've worked with them for years, and that's definitely the the, the way they they think about it. Um, and you know, some of these new initiatives. I, I again, I'm, I'm I'm encouraged by what I'm seeing them do. But even if you just sort of take a step back from that, um, to your point, right? That they they're probably doing the best in video. And if you could be the world, let's call it a video search engine. It's more than that, but let's just call it that. If you could be the world's biggest video search engine, that would be pretty good because the last time a company became the search engine, it uh, worked out pretty fabulously. So I, I think they're going to be good no matter what because I do think they're the destination for many of us uh, or many of the world when they're looking for video content. They're the go-to spot. Um, and I think if they you know, continue to work on some of the projects that they are around, different types of programming and original programming. But the key for that to work on, on these big platforms is the platforms have to get behind it if it's going to be advertising-based. And then Facebook is is it also has a very engineering mindset, but the way they bring you the way they bring you video is very different, which is they bring you video, right? You don't go looking for something on Facebook. You go to Facebook, videos come through your feed, and they're trying to create this new version of that where you actually go to the Facebook video tab and or maybe the Facebook video app because you want to go to consume video that Facebook has made for you. But it's it's a different use case for Facebook. Do you think that's going to work for them or do you think they're always going to be sort of something where videos is kind of ambient I coming think there in, is coming some, some things that are similar I mean honestly when you go to the right when you, when you go to a YouTube page and you actually see that right hand rail right. Um, where a ton of consumption comes from that's not too dissimilar from you know, it, it's different than obviously your news feed because that's more uh, people based Right. the difference um, is you've gone to YouTube and then they present you with more stuff that's similar to what you were looking at, whereas Facebook, you just go to kill some time, and some of the stuff you're going to see is videos. That's right, yeah. Um, but in terms of, look, I'm again, I'm encouraged by what I'm seeing all the platforms. What, what's cool for us, right, is we started out as a video company that believed that these big platforms um, would really embrace video, and that would create a unique opportunity for a company that created high-quality content and that had a brand and to bring their channel around the world. And so all the moves that they're making is encouraging. I mean, Facebook is testing a lot of different things. As you mentioned, the video tab, they're testing monetization. Um, all of those, I think, are encouraging. And But the other thing I would say is it's it's literally like day one of this whole thing. I mean, what I just described, the, the world's biggest social platform is still testing kind of these fundamental things or core elements of what will make a good video service on their platform. Yeah, a couple of years ago, there wasn't video on that's, Facebook. That's right, which is kind of incredible um, when you think about how far we've come. So I really think it's really just the beginning um, of this whole thing taking shape, both for the big platforms and for companies like ours. That's good for you to be in the early stages. Well, but think about it. Sometimes it's not so good. I mean, that's what and, you want to be too early. That's right. And actually, on one of your uh, uh, on one of your recent podcasts, that was discussed, right? About, I love it when my podcast gets. That's right. So right. Other uh, in the context of uh, now this news, right? There was yep. some discussion about maybe we were a little early. Um, that's the and, Kenny Lair. That's the right. Infamous Kenny Lair episode, which was yeah, it was good. It was a good listen. <laughs> um, but if you if you listen to that, right? He was talking about maybe we were a little too early in, in that case, and and that's one of the things that we're proud about is you know we were. Uh, around the same time. And I kind of talked about some of the dynamics, so particularly around um, kind of YouTube's evolution, right? We were on YouTube. We were pretty much a YouTube company when we started. And, and, and you know, they did this big investment and stopped. And so what it forced us to do was, okay, cool. Well, we still want to make high-quality original programming in this new way as a channel, as a brand. What do we do? And, and that's actually when we started really doing a lot of good work with brands. Because, because you had to. That's right. That's right. We had to figure to out a going. way to make a good business model for video um, in the way I've described. And so we started to work with you know companies like Hyundai as an example, where we have a series with them. Um, it's I called def- the. I definitely wrote about this one. Right? That's right. Yeah, it's called the Grill Iron. It's a it's a good series. It's now on its uh, season three. Um, but that's an example of the type of programming we created um, in partnership with brands that was high quality programming. We've done since you know we have a series we did with San Pellegrino that won the Webby for Best Documentaries. So there's, uh, if done properly, you can make really high quality content with brands that work for them as well as work for consumers. And that's, we're proud of that. And that was kind of constraints 
creating innovation, right? And that that's that's what was happening kind of, you know, after 2012, 2013, we needed to develop that. We we've we've done that and that's since scaled pretty dramatically for us. All right. Well, you it's at least working enough that you could afford the plane ticket to come here <laughs> on this podcast. Thank you for flying here. If you guys like listening to people talk about food and media and technology and if you're this far into it, you probably do. Stay tuned. Helen Rosner from Eater is going to come chat about a different version of this conversation. Thanks for coming, Larry. Thanks, Peter. We're going to take another brief break here and hear from my friend Kara Swisher, who has a word from Amazon Web Services. In the information age, data is the new oil, which is why Amazon Web Services built Amazon Kinesis, a powerful new way to collect, process, and analyze streaming data so you can get timely insights and react quickly. Websites, mobile apps, IoT sensors, and the like can generate a huge amount of streaming data, sometimes terabytes an hour. If processed continually, all that data can help you learn about what your customers, products, and applications are doing right now and take actions in real time. Amazon Kinesis from AWS lets you do that easily for less. With Kinesis, you pay only for the resources you use. No minimums, no upfront commitments. Learn more at kinesis.aws. Thanks, Kara. Back here with Helen Rosner, who you know from Eater. Helen. Hi. Say hello. Hello. Helen Rosner from Eater. What's your official? Do we care what your official title is? No, titles are meaningless. But if you were to care, I am the editor at large. Helen's from Eater. She rocks. She and Greg Morabito. That's right. Have an awesome podcast called The Upsell. The Eater Upsell. We're doing we're doing some some like synergistic crossover. Yeah, I want to say crossover episodes. What's a famous crossover episode? The Jetsons and the Flintstones is where I okay. instantly go. I was thinking like, was there one with Happy Days? But I'm so old. Well, Mork and Mindy spun off out of Happy Days, if that's where you were going. Yeah. But there's also the Golden Girls and Silver Spoons. There's a right. lot. And there were probably like a lot of like Law and Order. Oh, sure. I mean. From one to the other. And then, of course, the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe. Okay. So you had a celebrity who's not a chef on today. Yeah. We're going to we, do a time warp thing because you won't hear that for weeks. Right. Our episode with Brian Koppelman, the yeah. showrunner of Billions and a gourmand extraordinaire, will be running in a couple of weeks. This and is how cool Helen is. One. Yeah, yeah. I, I I tried to get Brian Koppelman to appear on this show. And he He said declined no. because I made him angry. But Helen got him. That's I why I have to talk to him anyway. I'm not controversial in any way. That's why. You're you right. made him angry. When, you, when you're not normally having Brian Koppelman on, you have rock star chefs. We do. Yeah. Dave and Chang. David Chang, Anthony Bourdain, Alton Brown, Andrew Zimmern, Carla Hall. Everyone Mario cool Vitale. in food comes on your show. They do. Otherwise, they're not cool. So I wanted to talk about that. I wanted to talk about the celebrity chef with you. And I wanted to recreate a conversa- a good conversation we had in a mediocre Irish bar yeah. recently. Yeah, we're doing it this time without the vodka. Oh, just imagine. So here's what I remember you telling me. There are no more new celebrity chefs being made. That David Chang is the last one we've made. When he, that's about 11 years ago. And I said, really? There have to be new ones. In fact, there must be new ones created all the time because of Instagram. And Facebook and the stuff that that, uh, Larry Fitzgibbon is doing at at Tastemade. And you said, nope. That is more or less accurate. I think uh, there is a certain caliber of celebrity chef. And we, of course, have to constrain some definitions here, right? Like when I'm talking about a celebrity chef in this sense, there are a lot of people who have become extraordinarily famous and very wealthy and very successful and have very high recognition levels thanks to television or thanks to most, mostly really television, who I, I don't know if I would necessarily qualify as a celebrity chef. I'm thinking of, of, of someone who is affiliated with restaurants, who cooks or has cooked in the past, and who is one of the people who, you know, as food culture started becoming food culture X number of years ago, was kind of being spoken about in breathless terms in mainstream media publications. Someone who food people know and like, and then who who bubbles up into sort of mainstream, semi-main, you'd say, oh, I know who that guy yeah. is. I, is that Dave? I've heard of David Chang or right. you tell your Guy Fieri, you right? I mean, it's a different version of it, but it's still someone who comes from restaurants and then becomes big enough that, that people recognize them, maybe not on the street, but when they appear on TV. And you say, we have not had any new ones for a decade. Yeah, I, I think uh, after we had that conversation in the bar, I, I reconsidered this in a slightly less tipsy state, and I think a decade might be a little much. But I do think that it's certainly the case that the the titans of celebrity chefdom, of the people who have become famous for being chefs, that list of names hasn't really grown in the last, what, let's say, five plus but years. 
food is bigger than ever. Food is the biggest. Everyone loves food. There's entire businesses. We just talked to someone who runs one based on food. Yeah, and, and there on? are lots of really fantastic chefs who are reaching incredible levels of success and acclaim and popularity. It's an interesting time to pay attention to the world of food, and it has been an interesting time for the last 15 or 20 years, basically since the advent of the Food Network, which I'm guessing you just talked about a yeah. lot. The the notion of food as a cultural vector basically was introduced into the world. Like food is a thing that we should be considering the same way we consider music or theater or books or movies as a thing that we consume to help create pleasure and entertainment, but also to create certain tribal allegiances. Like I'm into this kind of thing. I'm into this culture. Right. I'm into the subcultures within it. No one talked about, I mean, there were, like there if were you people. were a certain I mean, kind of yuppie, you would try to make your own, you would buy a pasta maker sure. there, I mean, there's 30 years been, ago and you'd play around with that. And if you were pretentious, you would talk about the pasta you'd made, but you'd stop making it and everyone would move on. Yeah. And, and there, I mean, there have always been people who have been into food. There have always been restaurants that have been buzzy or zeitgeisty, but the notion of chef as celebrity being a normal thing, not a radical exception, is a relatively new thing. And I think that as food has evolved over particularly the last five to ten years, there was restaurant culture. There were people who were really into restaurants, yeah. really into chefs. and there That's was, what eaters based on. For sure. It's, it's where our origins lie. And there was cooking culture, which are these you know, yuppies making pasta that you're talking about. And it's sometimes my parents. Sure. They made terrible pasta. I mean, making pasta at home, I mean, sidebar so is rarely as good as buying it at the store. Go. It's really just don't don't even bother. But um, they were different universes, you know? Like it, it was like being a person who was really into playing the violin versus being a person who was really into going to punk shows. Like it's – you're both really But into now music, it's all mashed but, up together. Right. It's food culture. Right. And? And you're setting me up because you, you remember our conversation better than I do. No, but I just want to know where the I celebrities say. are. Why aren't there famous They're people still attached? They're there. No, why no, aren't there. Why aren't there new celebrities who have come up in the last five years – and if it's if you're saying well they're not they're not on TV they're not getting access to TV anymore presumably the internet should make food you know I think right? they are getting access to TV I think in a in a way it's a signal to noise thing in a way it's just sort of the volume of food is greater than it was a lot of it is just early entry advantage if you were in the first generation to become famous as a chef in the post food network landscape you probably didn't set out to become famous necessarily right like you at the moment the world decided that being in food was cool you happened to be at the top of the mountain. And you get swept up in it. And some people didn't like it and decided to abandon the celebrity that was being handed to them. And, you know, if you're a hardcore food obsessive, you still know who they are. But otherwise, you have people who knew how to embrace the fame and attention that was being thrust upon them and, and turn it into something that was marketable and pleasant and helped further their brand and helped make people interested. You have Mario Batali's, the David Chang's, who approach it differently there are still plenty of people who get TV shows. There are plenty of people who win Top Chef or who win Chopped. But there are so many more than there used to be. There Is it are, there's so many more people who are doing that or just so many more people who are popular and there are – well, there's no more Vine stars because Vine's gone. But there's just many more people who are popular yeah, I think in media. That's and, a certain and, part of it, right? Like it, celebrity is less scarce as a good than it used to be. And if you were a person who became famous in an era when – fame was less democratic, your fame is of a different sort, unless you really managed to transcend it. So there was a route in the last 20 years ago, but we're saying it sort of sh shut down five years ago, where you became a well-known chef in food circles, and you were good-looking enough, intelligent enough that you got onto TV. But you didn't have to be that good-looking. You just you had to make good food. You had to be, I mean... I mean, you know, we can give significant looks to each other, but yeah. there are some chefs who are hot, There, but like, there are far more chefs who are just really good cooks and fairly yeah, charismatic. Yeah, but... You TV generally doesn't allow unpleasant-looking people on TV for extended periods of time. Anyway, the point is you would get on TV, you would become more famous, and then you sort of could do some combination of getting out of the restaurant business because that's a brutal business and you would just be a celebrity and you would have a line of cookware or you would use that fame to open up more restaurants, some combination of that. Does that road then not exist if you are – we were talking about Mission Chinese. It's sure, a cool restaurant so in, in New York. I would like to go. I haven't gone. It's great. Presum and there's apparently the woman who runs it. Sure. Angela Demagaya is the chef at Mission Chinese. Is telegenic and in, in, And she's spectacular. Yeah, and I, I she's, learned this from a New York Times thing. But yeah. it seems like she should be in that route if she wants to be. She should be. She is. She is on the path to extraordinary fame. It's rare that someone like this comes up. And it's rare that – fame to that degree and when we're talking about fame here I think like 
it's important to consider it in terms of who it's speaking to. The the world of restaurant obsessives, it used to be a full contact sport. It used to be the case that if I lived in Albuquerque, I knew what restaurants were opening in the East Village, if that was the thing that I was into. I knew it was happening in San Francisco, in LA. Again, because of sites like Eater. Because of sites very like Eater. Very specifically sites like Eater. It was a soap opera. It was a sports team. It was a thing that you followed with incredible minutiae. And there are still people who care about that. But the way that food culture as a whole has grown and changed it has moved away specifically from being restaurants or specifically being home cooking to being a notion of food as lifestyle. And I don't mean lifestyle in the Instagram way. I mean it in the genuine, actual way. Food as lifestyle being an all-consuming thing. If you care about food as a consumer or a person, I mean, as a person, if you care about food in the confines of food culture, it doesn't just mean you care about going out to eat. It definitely doesn't just mean that you care about going out to eat at the high end at a restaurant where you know the name of the chef. It means you care about where you do your grocery shopping, how you do your cooking, how many Instagram followers do you have. I mean, there are aspects of this that are very eye roll, and there are aspects of this that I think are really great. That that it is a, a thing where, you know, we give a certain intentionality to the choices that we make, assuming you have you know the budget and the time. So you can signal, and beyond that's the cynical version, or just be interested in um, food and not ever. What's the the cool restaurant? Is it Denmark? Noma. No, is that Denmark? Did it, I get it right? It, Which doesn't exist is. anymore. Yes, it closed recently. Um, that you could be interested in food and participate in being interested in, in that in that restaurant, Noma, without ever going there or even aspiring to go or without ever going to New York and going to Mission Chinese because there's enough stuff wherever you live and you can order it and you can consume it online um, that you can participate in food culture without sort of obsessing about that restaurant or that chef. Right. And there, I mean, there certainly are still people, like I think of them as checklisters who kind of travel the world, making sure they hit every Michelin three-star restaurant. I mean, there's stuff that happens at the obscenely wealthy, obscenely high level. But a lot of this also comes down to the fact that restaurants uniquely among the cultural offerings of things, restaurants are not replicatable in the same way that an album might be or a movie. Even if you're talking about live theater, you can take a video recording of the experience and capture a lot of it. But short of a chain restaurant, which is a totally different animal, you can't have a Noma on every corner. Part of that also is that the scarcity of Noma is a lot of its value and a lot of its interest. Like the brain of Rene Redzepi, the chef behind Noma, is a fascinating brain. The way he thinks about food and what food does as an emotional element, as a storytelling vehicle, but also as a scientific phenomenon, is unique and is compelling in the same way that all a-list top successful chefs think about food in ways that are unique and compelling. But what does it mean that you have to buy a plane ticket to Denmark, you have to go all the way to Copenhagen, you have to get a very, very hard to get reservation? I mean, the scarcity adds interest, it adds value. Right, and Super Bowl tickets are hard to get, and they're very expensive, and it's hard to get to, and only a certain number of people can go to them, and it's a once-a-year event. But you can watch the Super Bowl yeah. and get as much or more value out of it. You cannot watch someone eating at Noma and enjoy it. No, because, you know, the intimate sensory experience of food is taking it into your body. So I still don't know if we've answered the question about why... Why are there no Why there are no new people who've broken through. Why, when I watch... And I watch a bunch of the TV shows, right? I watch MasterChef and Top Chef. They kind of are recycling people. They're very often bringing on people who I've seen on other shows, on other networks, and they're not really bringing in new faces. And it's confusing. You would think there'd be some new 25-year-old whomever. It is confusing. I mean, there, I, don't, I don't think there is an easy answer. I think as a phenomenon, it's something that the the food culture industry is still so in its youth that it's, I think, not ready to do the same kind of self-reflection that a lot of other industries have been doing for decades. But, you know, I think it's a combination of a lot of things. Being a chef is not quite the rock star thing it used to be. It's shifted. Being restaurateur is meaningful. Opening a new restaurant is meaningful. But if I'm opening a restaurant in Manhattan, I don't really necessarily need to market it in Minnesota. So what's the point of appearing on a national show? I mean, I'm sure these these folks, publicists, would love to have them get tons of national attention. But you wind up having regional geographic fragmentation. TV becomes an end in itself as opposed to a way to further your career behind the stove. You turn yourself into a TV star. I mean, Alex Guarnaschelli, who I think is probably one of the most recognizable chefs Chopped. out there. Right. And, you know, all, all I was I was talking with a friend the other day who was saying that all across America, there are millions, tens of millions of people who probably think that Alex Guarnaschelli is the sine qua non of chefs. Like, she's the best chef in America. This is the Recode Media podcast. We don't use that kind of... 
I'm sorry, I said a Latin uh, phrase. Yeah, it, thank it, you. Dumb it down for us. Sure. For, I'm sorry for me. You know what that means. Big deal? Yeah, but they thank think you. she's it. She's it. The she's, shit? She's the shit. And thank she you. is the shit. She is a, a talented cook. She's a great person. She's super interesting. Is she the best chef in America? I don't know. And I but but the way that she is on television, she is marketed as the best chef in America. Okay. I still don't know why there isn't a new 25-year-old Alex Gernicelli. I don't know, maybe you should or listen to my podcast. I don't is this where I plug my podcast? Oh, yeah, yeah, plug but but, but, you, but <laughs> no, the I point mean, is you are you there well, are there it's a universe there is right? a universe of celebrity big deal chefs the shit and they all come on your podcast. They do. Yeah. You have you kind of have the entire universe of them. We do. Yeah, and you know You're not going to, to like third tier people because you don't need to get them because you have all the big ones. That makes me sound like the shit. Well, you know, we talk to people who are at all sorts of stages in their careers. We've talked to people like Wolfgang Puck, who basically created Celebrity. And we talked to people like J.J. Johnson, who are kind of blazing the new trail of what it means oh, to be a Oh, there's a new chef. person. Right? No, he's great. But you know what? I'm just assuming based on your facial expression right now, you haven't heard of him. Nope. No clue. And he's a chef right here in New York. But, you know, you've heard of David Chang. You've heard of April Bloomfield. You've heard of these big names. And... The path to get there is different now than it used to be. And, yeah, I don't know if there's an easy answer, but I think it's a, a fascinating thing to be thinking about. Okay. If you're interested in this kind of conversation, but instead of me pestering Helen about why there isn't a celebrity chef, just imagine Helen talking to an actual celebrity chef. You should go listen to... The Eater Upsell, which you can find at iTunes.com slash Eater or Eater.com slash Upsell or wherever fine podcasts Yeah, what I usually available. say is you can find it because you know how to find this podcast because you you're listening to this podcast right now as yeah, we're speaking. The Eater Upsell. It's really fun. I have a lot of fun doing it. And you're on an upcoming episode. So it's fun to listen to. Yeah. It's no, it's cool. um, We talked about Wilco. Yeah, we do. It's a... It's kind of a Gen X old guy rock and roll conversation. Which is great because rock and roll I'm, makes I'm it a sound millennial cooler girl, than it is. So we're awesome, terrific. You were, you were very polite, and thank you for coming on. Thanks to you guys for listening. If you like listening to this, you know where to find more of it. Um, I talked to Nick Qua, who can tell you about the business of podcasting. Rebecca Traster, who raised hell, and she was awesome. Ryan Holiday, who will teach you how to write a best-selling book, and also why you should be a stoic. Helen knows what a stoic is if she's working. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our awesome sponsors, TransferWise and Amazon Web Services. Thanks to Digital Media, who sells those ads to those companies. Um, Thanks to my producers, Beth O'Connell and Eric Johnson, and my editor, Chris Basil. This is Rico Media. We will see you next week. Bye. Hi, I'm Dieter Bone from The Verge, and I'm breaking into your podcast for just a minute to ask you a pretty simple question. Have you ever read or watched a tech review and thought, ugh, This is just not for me. It's way too nerdy, and it's made by some super fan who just wants to talk about how many pixels there are on the screen, when really all you want to know is, is it any good, and how do you actually use the darn thing? Well, good news, we've just launched Verge Guidebook. It's the next generation of our tech reviews program. With Guidebook, we're going to tell you what to buy, what's not worth your money, and most importantly, how to actually use it. You can head it over to theverge.com slash reviews, and you're going to find our editor's picks, the very best gadgets in every category from smartphones to laptops to crazy stuff like smart light bulbs, and a ton of how-to guides are going to walk you through all of it. That's theverge.com slash reviews. We've got incredibly good videos, some really engaging writing, and of course, those very useful guides. 